Good morning, friends. Um, it doesn't take much investigation to look on social media and online and see that we love to post our successes of our do-it-yourself projects, right? You have been there before. You've seen your friends who have proudly posted, look what I did. I did it all by myself. And so I gave our staff an opportunity this week. I said, hey, those DIY projects out there, do-it-yourself projects, send them on in. Let me know what you've done. I'll give you a chance to brag on yourself. And so uh, many people responded. And I'm gonna share with you uh, the hidden talent on our staff. And just to be fair, I'm gonna share with you a little bit of those projects that didn't go quite according to plan. So let's start with a success, all right? Uh, the first is Robbie Rice's fence. Now, if you're looking to rebuild a fence, pretty impressive. I would post that, right? Uh, the second one is Diane Kirstead's dining room. Now, that's, yeah, hey, good audience response. Uh, Josiah Jones told me he was the winner, and he submitted this, all right? Pretty good. It's impressive. It's impressive. Uh, and then what I love about our staff were those who were quick to say, okay, and here's what didn't go quite so well. And so I thought I'd share that with a few thousand people. How about that? Uh, David Petty's greenhouse. Uh, his email to me was funnier than the picture. Uh, I love Nicole Tulanius. She is actually really gifted in so many ways. Here are her kitchen chairs. You may say, oh, those look great. Well, they were all supposed to look the same. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> uh, don't ask Jeff Ward to help move your stuff. <laughs> yep. And... Uh, Certainly don't ask Robert Green to change your oil. There you go. Yes, that's all over his garage floor. So <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate our staff's humor. They send in their successes and they send in their failures. Right? We've, we've all experimented with these do-it-yourself projects. And the reason I bring this up in kind of a lighthearted way is now to make kind of a more serious point is sadly is I think many of us approach the spiritual life with a do-it-yourself mindset. What do I mean by that? I think many of us, or let me say this, many outside of the church believe that they can earn or merit God's favor on their own, what they can do for themselves. Hey God, look at my resume. Look what I've done for you. Look how good I am. Look what I choose to do. Look what I choose not to do. It's kind of like a scale, the good outweighs the bad. But within the church, sadly, many of us aren't necessarily trying to earn God's love. We're trying to keep God's love. We're trying to preserve 
God's love. As if we do more and more and more and run on the treadmill that's at a hopeless incline, somehow we can make God love us more because we might find fall in and out of favor with God. And nothing can be further from the truth. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you could do to make God love you less. And communion was a reminder of that. I wonder how many of us in here really believe that. Or if we are kind of like, did he just say that? That feels scandalous to me. Do you really believe that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, nothing you can do to make God love you less? You see, we, some people operate with a performance-based acceptance mindset. If I perform more, then God will accept me and love me more, rather than with a mindset of acceptance-based performance. I know I'm loved and accepted by God. And so I'm motivated to respond in gratitude for what he's already done for me. Those are two very different things. Those are two very different motivations for why we do what we do. When we operate with a performance-based mindset, it leads to burnout and exhaustion and legalism and shame and guilt. But when we operate with an acceptance-based performance, there's gratitude. There's joy, there's peace. We're continuing our series called Dying to Live and, and we're working our way through Romans chapter six, seven and eight and it's, it's covering um, this whole topic called sanctification or the spiritual life. And these are, these are deep waters of theological truths. And we're gonna wade into to chapter seven this morning and um, it's almost unfair to just drop me into Romans 7, beginning of verse 7 through 25, because it, it takes a lot to explain the background of where we, where we are. I got a lot of puzzled looks at the 9 o'clock, but I think you can do it. All right? This looks like a brighter crowd. You're awake, and we could do it. Right? We, we want to understand something that's as important as Romans chapter 7. The first thing I want you to recognize, though, throughout this whole series, week after week, what we're trying to impress upon you, what Paul's trying to say to us, is that the spiritual life is one of active surrender to the Spirit. The spiritual life is one of it's active surrender to the Spirit of God. It is not one do-it-yourself project after another. We're not working to earn God's love, but we're responding to it. Now, let me give you some theological terms that make you sound really smart over lunch. Right? There's a word in Scripture called justification, a word called sanctification, and a word called glorification. Before your eyes glaze over, just hang with me. Justification is so important. Justification is when God declares us forgiven. It's a legal term. We are freed from the penalty of sin at the moment of salvation. But that's not all the Bible says about our salvation. We're, we're declared righteous, we're forgiven based upon what Christ has done for us, his death, burial, and resurrection. But then we grow in Christ's likeness. We respond and cooperate to his spirit. We respond in obedience. We seek to know him more. And this is the sanctification process. 
Justification is, addresses the guilt of sin, while sanctification addresses the dominion and presence of sin in our lives. But the great hope is at the very end, glorification is we're going to be freed from the presence of sin when we die and we go home with him. That's our hope. We're freed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. God is doing a work in our heart every day if we will respond to him. The Westminster Catechism defines sanctification like this. This is the, the Reformed tradition of the faith. It says it like this. Sanctification is a work of God's grace. Just so important for us to understand. Sanctification is a work of God's grace by which those whom God has chosen to be holy before the foundation of the world are in time through the powerful operation of the Spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ to them are renewed in their whole person after the image of God. The seeds of repentance that leads to life and all the other saving graces are put into their hearts and those graces are stirred up, increased and strengthened so that they may more and more die to sin and rise to newness of life. Sanctification is that ongoing work of God's spirit in our hearts where we are being conformed daily into the image of Christ. So when we get to the book of, or to the chapter seven of the book of Romans, last week, um, John Elmore was talking to us how we have been released from the Mosaic law. We're no longer under the law because Christ has fulfilled the law. He paid the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross and rising again. And we have forgiveness. And this led to the question of, well, if that is true, then what are we to conclude about the law? And John explained last week, well, we've been released from the law. We're no longer under the law. We rest in what Christ has done for us. And so it's with that background we pick up verse 7 through 25. What is our relationship to the law now, the Mosaic law now? How are we to think about the law? Somehow in our performance, in our responding to God, can we, are we to behave in such a way that he can, would love us more or accept us more? Can we fall in and out of favor with, with God? What is the spiritual life and what is its relationship to the law? Well, he's gonna argue two points. In verses seven through 13, he's gonna say the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. But then in verses 14 through 25, he says, but the law is weak. I want to explain that. So let's jump into the deep end. Hang with me. And we'll try to make sense out of a, a really dense passage. Beginning in verse 7. Paul says, what then shall we say? In other words, in light of the fact that we've been released from the law because of what Christ has done for us, what should we say about the law? That the law is sin? That the problems with the law he says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Underline that. I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, what is he trying to communicate to us? What he's saying is the law is good. God gave us the law because he loves us. It's good in that it defines sin for us. 
the law defines sin. And he says most specifically here is that he gives the example of we should not covet. How do we know we shouldn't covet? Because the law tells us that. Now, some of you might be looking at me going, no, what is the law? What are we talking about? What is the law? Well, I'd have to take you back to the book of Exodus where God calls a people out of captivity and bondage to slavery in Egypt and he sets them apart, he redeems them and he seeks to live in relationship with him and the law reveals his character and it shows them their need for his grace. And the law spoke to every area of their life. It told them how they were to dress, how they were to conduct business, how they were to worship him, who they were to marry, what they were to eat. It informed every area of their life. And Israel, God's people, were to be a kingdom of priests set apart from all the other nations of the earth that they might be a blessing to everyone, to the whole world. And so the law was good in that it reflected the character of God and the will of God. And it helped Israel recognize who God is. Paul's just making the point here, the law is not the problem. What is the problem is sin. Although we've been released from the law as Christians today, we're not under it. We don't need to follow it because Christ fulfilled it for us. The problem is sin. It's never been the law. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that is contrary to the will of God. That's what sin is. And in Romans 3, just a few chapters previous to this, Paul makes the argument, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Me, you, we've all done that. We've offended a perfect, righteous, and holy God. Problem is not with the law, but with sin. Every year growing up, I, I would go um, to the beach of, in South Carolina with my family, and we'd heading to the you know, our beach house, we'd drive over this really large bridge, and as you went over the bridge, there was a massive sign, and the, and the sign read, right, no swimming, no lifeguard on duty, dangerous riptide, dangerous undercurrent, you will drown, no swimming, with the grim reaper, you know the figure, skull and crossbones, I mean, the sign couldn't be more clear, and every year, without fail, I'd read the newspaper of someone who ignored the sign. And every year, there are those who drowned. Now think how ridiculous it would be if I were to walk up and go, man, I hate that sign. The problem's with the sign. Just get rid of the sign. No, the problem is with the riptide. The problem is that the riptides and the undercurrent, the undertow leads to death. The sign is there to, to warn us. And the law was there, God's word was there to warn us, to warn Israel and to say to them, hey, listen, if you follow your own way, if you follow the way of the nations, it's going to lead to death. The law just showed you the will of God and the character of God. And that's Paul's point, verse seven. And then he goes on to say, the law is good, not just because it defines sin, but it also exposes our sin nature. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. What in the world does that mean? It means that sin exposes our rebellious nature. We have a rebellious sin nature. It says that sin seizes every opportunity to incite rebellion. It says it twice. It's conveying the idea that sin is like an enemy force within our hearts. Let me give you an illustration of this. On my jogging route in the mornings, I run by a massive um, tree, magnolia tree. And it's a tree that anybody who sees would go, man, I want to climb that tree. But yet there's this sign right in front of the, the tree. And what does it say? Please do not climb on tree. Now, you know what this sign makes me want to do? I want to climb the tree. All the more because the sign's there. Now, you may think, what's wrong with you? Well, let me ask you something. When you walk into an antique store and there's something really nice, and it says, please do not touch. Is there not some part of you that wants to just go, That's a sin nature. There's something within all of us that just relishes the rebellion. It's true of all of us. In his classic book, Confessions, Augustine wrote this. Stick with me. All right, a little old English, but you could do it. You could do it. There was a pear tree close to our vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was tempting neither for its color nor its flavor. To shake and rob this, some of its wanton young fellows went late one night and carried away great loads, not to eat ourselves, but to fling to the very swine. Having only eaten some of them and to do this pleased us all, the more because it was not permitted. Do you hear what he's saying? Augustine's saying, hey, I see a pear tree. The tree's not mine. I don't even really like pears. It didn't even look good to me. But just the idea of the rebellion to take that which was not mine excited me. Behold now, let my heart tell you what it was seeking there, that I should be gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved my own error. Not that for which I erred, but the error itself. Base soul failing from your firmament to utter destruction, not seeking anything through the shame, but the shame itself. Do you hear that? We have a rebellious nature. That there's something in us that when it says, don't touch, don't take, finds it exciting, finds it kind of thrilling in the rebellion. And so Paul, what he says is, in verses 12 through 13, he says, hey, listen, the law is good. Problem's not with the law. Problem's within our hearts. Verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Again, this is a dense passage. Paul's just concluding. He's saying, hey, listen, those of us who have been released from the law, those of us who have been set free, the law's good. 
It's holy. It reveals the character and nature of God. Think about it like this. We're not told don't murder simply because the U.S. government tells us not to murder. Laws change. They come and go. Why are we not to murder? It's because God is the originator, giver, and sustainer of life. That's why. Why do we not steal? Why do we not lie? Because God is a God of truth. We're not to covet because God is our provider. He's our source of sufficiency. The law teaches us about the character and nature of God. And the law reveals our sin and our desperate need for his grace. Paul in Romans or in Galatians 3 verse 24 says, therefore the law has become our tutor, our help, our guide. For what? To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. When you read the law, you can't help but go, I can't keep all that. That's because God's holy, perfect, and righteous, and just, and none of us are like him. And when we read it, we're like, I am in trouble. There is sin within my heart. I need God's grace. I'm desperate for his forgiveness, and that's exactly what the law is supposed to do. Reveal the character of God and show you your need for Jesus. We all need him. And I want you just to take a moment this morning and just to evaluate the motives and condition of your heart. Just stop and just ask yourself, hey, what what do I need to confess this morning? What am I hiding? What do I need to repent of? In what ways am I rationalizing, justifying minimizing sin in my life. What am I keeping secret? R.C. Sproul, a writer, theologian, he wrote this. He said, every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. What do you need to ask forgiveness for? Whose forgiveness do you need to seek? Because all of us have a sin nature that's rebellious toward the will of God. Friends, I want to be um, delicate but clear. We live in an outrage culture. And it is so easy for us to become outraged with everything that's going on out there. We're so outraged by what we see on TV and what's posted online and what we read in the news. And there's not, a, there's not a week that goes by, I don't get an email of like, you must address what's going on out there. And we're outraged. And for every email, I just wanna say, are we just as outraged by the sin in here? In here, in our hearts? Or are we just quick to go, oh, the problem's out there. Be slow. Driving down 75 just this week. And there was this joker behind me, right? Right on my bumper, just normal Dallas driving. (laughs) And I'd switch lanes, you know, they follow me and I hope you're not in here, right? And so I'm moving, you're moving. You know, it's uh, tailgating. And I'm looking in the rear view mirror, frustrated at that guy, like, get off my bumper. 
And then I'm like every other Dallas driver though, when I look forward, what am I doing? Same thing to that guy, right? Trying to survive. And it's easy for us to look in the rearview mirror and see what everybody else is doing wrong and become outraged. But do we look right in the mirror, the, the windshield in front of us and recognize we too are guilty of sin? We too are guilty of sin. So the law is good. The problem is sin, verses 14 through 23. He's now going to say, the problem's not with the law. The law is good, but the law is weak. The law is weak. Look at verses 14 through 23. This is dense, but stick with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do that what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sound familiar? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What in the world does that mean? It simply means this, is that Paul is, recognizes that there is a war within his heart between what he knows he should do and yet but what he wants to do, between the spirit and between the flesh. The spirit of God telling him life is here, obedience is here, peace and joy is found here, but his flesh is telling him, oh, but it feels good and it seems right to do this. And so there's a law within, and the law is weak because it can't change our hearts, it can't defeat that war. We need something, and that something is God's spirit. You see, we, all, we can all identify with this, right? We know we shouldn't click that image, but we want to. We shouldn't take another drink, but it sounds fun. We shouldn't embellish the truth, but I'll look better. We shouldn't lose our temper, but it feels satisfying. We shouldn't cheat on our expense report, but I'd rather not tell the truth. We tell another story to make ourselves look good when we know it's not altogether true. J.C. Ryle, his book called Holiness, wrote this, sanctification, again, is a thing which does not prevent a man having a great deal of inward spiritual conflict. By conflict, I mean a struggle within the heart between the old nature and the new, the flesh and the spirit, which are found together in every believer, a deep sense of that struggle, a vast amount of mental discomfort from it, are no proof that a man is not sanctified. Nay, rather, I believe they are healthy symptoms of our condition and prove that we are not dead, but alive. A true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. 
He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. I believe that what I say is confirmed by the language of St. Paul in the seventh chapter of Romans. The heart of the best Christian, even at his best, is a field occupied by two rival camps in the company of two armies. You say to me, what am I to conclude about the war that's within? It's troubling to me. And I say to you, find comfort. It's evidence of God's spirit at work in your life to convict you of sin. It's those who bear no conscience, who feel no conviction, who care not at all that I'd be most worried about. There is a war within the heart of a believer because we're not home yet. God hadn't finished with us. God is good and he gives us his spirit to convict us of sin and remind us of what is true. But the law, verses 24 through 25, is powerless to change the human heart. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He concludes this looking back, going, hey, I I sense this inner war, this, this struggle between the spirit and the flesh. What am I gonna do? God, help me. I I can't win this war on my own, no matter how hard I try. And then he previews what's to come, which is chapter eight, which I can't wait to get to chapter eight. Because chapter eight speaks of what God has done for us in giving us his spirit. He doesn't leave us alone to do one do-it-yourself project, do-it-yourself project, do-it-yourself project after another. He empowers us with his spirit because the spiritual life is one of active surrender to God's spirit in our heart, not self-discipline, do-it-yourself efforts. What we need to do is actively surrender to the spirit's role in our lives. We need to humble ourselves. We need to re-examine our motives We need to understand, hey, why do we do what we do? And we need to admit our need, confess sin. Not just read God's word, but trust in it. Find our identity, not in what we bring to the the throne room of God, but what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. We need to wait on God and rest in the finished work of Christ. I remember the first time I went water skiing. And uh, my friend was saying, all right, Blake, it's really simple. You let the boat pull you up. There was something in me that's like, no. I, I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to do this on my own, right? And so it's like I fought the water, fought the rope, and fought the boat, only to find myself just torpedoing right down into the water. It's when I recognize, no, 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 you really do. You sit back in the water. And when the boat goes, it lifts you up. Too many of us are operating and see the spiritual life as this 
If I do, 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 then God will accept and love me more. And it leads to this performance-based acceptance. When in reality, what we recognize is our motivation is acceptance-based performance is that what has been done through the cross and the resurrection of Christ and the spirit of God that now lives within your heart and resting in that and responding in gratitude and a desire to love him because of how he has so lavishly loved you. Those are two really different motivations. I want you to hear from two of my friends who shared a little bit of their testimony and, um, and hear carefully what they're saying, how they used to be led by an acceptance, by a performance-based acceptance and legalism and how it led to exhaustion until they finally rested in the finished work of Christ, his resurrection, yielded to his spirit. Let's watch this together. Hi, my name is Christine, and I grew up in a loving Christian home and accepted Christ at a young age. But my relationship with Jesus was always a very transactional one. I wanted to be the good Christian girl. I followed all the rules, or I tried to. I wanted to earn God's love by doing enough good and thought that that's how you be a good Christian. But in reality, this lifestyle is exhausting. I remember reading in John 8, 36, for whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And I didn't feel free at all. And in John 10, Jesus talks about the abundant life that he comes to give us. And I didn't feel this abundant life at all. I felt exhausted. I finally came to the end of myself and realized that I fall short every single time of being good. A year after I graduated college, I finally hit my knees, recognized my sin, and realized that I needed a savior. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this verse came to life for me in a new way for the first time. There is absolutely nothing that I can do to make God love me any more or any less. So what changed after this? I started living my life in full surrender to the Lord. Not one foot in, one foot out. Fruit started to naturally overflow in my life, not because of my good works, but because of Christ in me and because of the gratitude for the good gift that he's given each of us. And for the first time in all my years of being a Christian, I started to experience this life and life to the full that Jesus offers every one of us. Hi, my name is Jenna. I was a Christian from a young age, but I lived as if I could earn the free gift of grace that Christ had offered to me. I was good at being good. I did everything that I could to be perfect, and anything that wasn't perfect, I hid it in the dark. You see, when you're living under legalism, there's no room to be authentic. I didn't know grace for myself, and then I was unable to show grace to others. This abundant life, rest, and easy yoke that Jesus spoke of was far from the life that I was experiencing. I was prideful, judgmental, and exhausted. I lived as a Pharisee, not as a disciple. At 17, I had a mentor ask me what the gospel was to me. It was the first time that I was confronted with the reality that I didn't know how to answer her question. I felt like a fraud. This Holy Spirit came and revealed all of my hidden sin and my constant striving, and it brought me to my knees. I was exhausted from 17 years of performing. I was worn down from trying so hard to be perfect. But it was there on my knees that the Lord met me with true grace. I can never be perfect, but Christ was perfect for me. 
If I can't manufacture my salvation, then I definitely can't manufacture my sanctification. I now carry a light burden and an easy yoke. I get to rest in and participate with the Spirit as He sanctifies me more and more into the image of Christ every day.